This is Phantom Power. Welcome to another episode of Phantom Power, a podcast about sound. I'm Mac Haygood. Today we're talking about the strange and recursive loops that have happened in history between architecture, media theory, acoustic space, and media technology. You might not know it, but architectural theory had a profound impact on the history of media theory, which in turn impacted architectural innovations like the open plan office. And the unintended acoustic consequences of the open plan office led to new kinds of media technologies like noise machines. It's a weird spiral that you might not know a lot about, but you soon will, thanks to my brilliant guest, Joseph L. Clark, an associate professor at University of Toronto. But first, I want to share a little bit of news, and then I want to share what I hope might be a new feature on this podcast. First, the news. Last week, we crossed 75,000 total show listens. And if you're a skeptic like me, you might wonder, well, couldn't those be bots or something? But my podcast host, which is the Ohio company Blueberry, they keep track of this sort of thing. And... One of the statistics that they'll provide is the amount of those listens that they call impactful plays. Um, And an impactful play means that the listener listened to at least 75% of a given podcast episode. Um, And I think they do it this way because a lot of people bail out when the credits begin to roll. So that's sort of how they measure if you're listening to the whole thing. They consider that 75% or more. Well, anyway, it turns out 85% of those 75,000 listens were what they would call impactful plays. Um, And I know that these aren't huge numbers when it comes to, you know, the big YouTubers or TikTokers of the world, but for a sort of niche podcast like this one, uh, I don't know, that feels pretty nice. So thank you. Now onto the new feature idea. Cyberpunk 2077, it's like, you can create a whole character and they allowed you to do things like swap genitals but you won't let me actually swap the voice. And it is so grating to have a black character that I built from scratch, from ground up with a white ass voice. Like it's really annoying. That's DRC Charrington Neal, an assistant professor of English at Fairfield University, who sent me some messages while he was listening to last week's episode featuring audiobook narrator extraordinaire Robin Miles. I've gotten some fantastic feedback on the Robin Miles episode, but what really knocked me out was that Dr. Neil sent me some voice messages and I was like, hello, where have you been all my life? (laughs) I mean, I hear verbal responses to our shows from friends and family and people at conferences and people at work and stuff. But DRC's response made me think, why don't I open up a channel for people to give me some verbal feedback that I can include on the show? So I did a little bit of research and I found an app called SpeakPipe. And so now you can go to speakpipe.com slash phantom power and you can just leave me a voice message. 
that I could play on the show. So please do that. I would love for this to start to be a thing. And as for DRC's really interesting comments on his frustrations as a black gamer around the racialized ways that video game characters are voiced, stick around to the end of the show and I'll share his comments with you. All right, let's get to our interview today. Joseph L. Clark, historian of art and architecture at the University of Toronto. I met Joseph at a public writing workshop at the University of Toronto, and I'm actually going to be talking more about that workshop in our next episode, which is about finding a literary agent. But Joseph and I really hit it off at that conference because we share an interest in the relationship between sound and space. He is an exceedingly good historian of architectural acoustics, and he's a really great writer. Uh, His 2021 book, Echoes Chambers, Architecture and the Idea of Acoustic Space, is a fascinating history of how architects have conceived of and manipulated the relationship between sound and space. In this episode, we'll talk about media theorist Marshall McLuhan and his architecturally inspired theory of acoustic space which went on to have its own influence in the field of architecture. We'll also dive deep into the history of the open plan office and the theories of acoustic communication that inspired it and the sonic disaster that it became (laughs) and the new media technologies that were invented in response to that disaster. And that's just what we'll cover in the public feed. For our patrons, we have another half hour of our interview in which we cover the full history of architectural acoustics going back to the ancients and going all the way forward to our computer models of today. It's really fascinating. And you'll also hear Joseph's What's Good segment, which is one of the best I've ever had someone do for the show. We could really use your support as a patron. I have some great students who are helping me out and they're learning a lot along the way. But if we could get more supporters on Patreon, I could hire a freelance editor to help me out some. You know, each one of these episodes takes 25 to 30 person hours at a minimum. That's just the dead minimum. And most of that, to be honest, is me. So if you want to unburden me a bit, (laughs) go to patreon.com slash phantompower and join. Uh, Membership starts at only three bucks a month. You'll get all of our bonus content and our what's good segments and my huge appreciation. Okay, here's my interview with Joseph L. Clark. His mic's a little crunchy, but the ideas were so cool, I stopped noticing pretty quickly. I think you will too. Enjoy. All right, Joseph, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mac. You were just telling me before we started recording that you are in Paris right now, and uh, you're in like some kind of 17th century building, is that correct? <laughs> oh, yes, the building where I'm staying, it's in the center of, uh, of Paris, so it's like, um, you know, this, all the buildings around me are kind of from uh, the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. So it's a it's a somewhat primitive space, but a very charming one. That sounds amazing. You really know how to do a research leaf. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing in Paris? You know, I'm following up on some of the research that I did for my book. Kind of trying to to my book came out a few years ago, but I'm still trying to trace down some some of the loose threads, and huh. and I'm also just really interested in um, the conversations and the the discourse around sound and space in 
France in relation to the conversations that we have in uh, North America. I'm um, ah, yeah. uh, teach. I teach at the University of of Toronto, and um, this was the, of course, the home of of Marshall McLuhan back in the fifties and sixties, who came up with the idea of of uh, kind of popularized the the idea of acoustic space. Canada was also the home of people like R. Murray Schaefer, who you you did a, a program on on the podcast. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of interesting discussions in Canada around sound and the spatial environment. But in France also, there's a very long-standing tradition of experimental uh, music, sound art, um, the musique concrète yeah. of, of Pierre Schaeffer in the 1940s. Still today, a lot of research in experimental music. Um, also, in, in the French academia, there's this tradition of the history of sensibilities, um, and I'm thinking about a writer like Alain Corbin, um, who's written a number of books and, and essays, wonderful scholarship about the history of the sense of hearing and kind of its relationship to to the city, to the landscape, to the, the physical environment in one form or another. So there, there are, I think, a lot of interesting conversations to be had between the the kinds of research that are going on right now in France around sound and the physical environment and um, the way we think about these concepts in North America. Oh, yeah. And I absolutely want to dig into that intellectual history in North America of the idea of acoustic space, because I, I just think that's a one really fascinating dimension of your work. But maybe before we do that, could you tell us a little bit about your background? You know, how did you get into this interest in the sonic dimension of architecture? Sure. So my background professionally is as an architect. I went to architecture school and then um, decided that I really was interested in the history of architecture and kind of found my way into um, my where I, I currently am. I teach in a department of art history. But I think my interest in sound and space really goes back to when I was growing up, I, I grew up in, in the Midwest, uh, near Cincinnati, uh, and I sang in choirs, uh, at, I sang in a choir at school and a church choir. Um, I was always interested in uh, music. And when I got to architecture school, I was actually really interested in how many of my classmates also had some kind of music in their background. And uh-huh. Uh-huh. It seemed to me like, I don't know, there was some part of the brain that architects architecture appeals to, that music also appeals to, some kind of combination of art and, and math. But at, at the same time, I realized as I went through architecture school that the way that we are taught, we were taught to design buildings was almost entirely visual. And we were told to design through drawings uh, through images, and really didn't get a lot of guidance in thinking about the sonic environment of spaces that that we were designing and inhabiting. And we all know that actually sound is an incredibly important part of the architectural environment. Um, but somehow it's yeah. a kind of, for architects, it's a kind of, of blind spot or maybe deaf spot. <laughs> we, we don't yeah. really have a lot of tools within the kind of disciplinary framework that architects use to design 
the auditory environment of buildings in an intentional way. You know, I, a couple of things come to mind there. One, when I'm just, I was just sort of going through the Rolodex in my head of architects I know, and I think all the ones I'm thinking of do play music. So that's, <laughs> that's an interesting uh, Isn't it weird? thing there. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I want to return to something that you raised earlier, and I want to maybe dive a little deeper into it, which is the idea of acoustic space, thinking about sound spatially. This is something that's near and dear to my heart because of my own research. And for me, I started thinking about sound spatially um, because of an experience I had when I lived in Taiwan many, many years ago in the, in the early mid nineties. Um, and I was sort of collecting these these uh, chanting Buddha machines. So these are the Pure Land Buddhists would use these little transistor-like radio-looking things that would have certain kinds of mantras uh, that would could loop on on these on these devices, and you could sort of generate karmic merit by playing these things, but also it did something to the space you were inhabiting, right? Like it made people feel peaceful, at ease, so on and so forth. And so when I, you know, I was just started collecting these things because they were like fascinating to me. I'd never seen anything like this. And then much, much later, I was in grad school and I was reading Henri Lefebvre's The Production of Space. And Lefebvre talks about space, not as just some kind of emptiness, but actually like a co-production of our mental ideas about space, our social enactment of space, so to speak, and, and the material dimensions of space. And that those three things together actually create the spaces we inhabit. And, and that so space is not just material, it's also representational and it's social. And when I read that, it brought me back to those Buddha machines that I collected, right? So I was like thinking, oh, yes, those technologies are using sound in a way that's social, but it's also spatial. It's creating a certain kind of space that a person can inhabit. And that's really what set me off on all my research into white noise and noise-canceling headphones and so forth was thinking about how we could construct a particular lived space through sound. And then it was only through that interest that I learned about things like R. Murray Schaefer's The Soundscape and, and other people who were thinking about sound spatially. And I started reading that literature. Not that there was a ton of it, but there was some stuff. What I love about your book is, you know, the, the, the full title is Echoes, Chambers, Architecture, and the Idea of Acoustic Space. And it's giving us this cultural history of the idea of acoustic space. Actually, this idea, at least in that terminology, acoustic space, is a very recent vintage, right? Like, this is Marshall McLuhan, and it is also architecture's influence on Marshall McLuhan. So I'm wondering if maybe you can talk about how McLuhan put this idea on the map and how it influenced people like R. Murray Schaefer, who are going to be, you know, familiar to our listeners. 
That's that's what a great question, and a, and I mean that's so that's fascinating about the about the Buddhas and the and the the, the whole uh, your your Taiwan story. Um, I just <laughs> wanted to to pick up also on um, you you brought up uh, Lefebvre and the, uh-huh. the production of space, um, which is which is great. And I just wanted to to add that architecture is such an important part of that. And Lefebvre talks about the role of architecture in producing space. So um, I think it's it's so important to think of space not just as a kind of neutral container that's already there that we just fill with stuff, right. but, but the space as it's lived in and as we understand it and, and occupy it socially is actually produced by us and, and by, as you say, by the kind of, of material uh, world, in, including architecture. And the role of architecture in articulating space and thereby, we, we might say, creating space as, as a phenomenal uh, reality is one that has been much discussed by architects. For, for mm-hmm. many, many years, there was a, a German architectural theorist named um, August Schmarsov at the end of the 19th century who, who made this argument that the, that the ultimate function, the kind of highest function of architecture was the creation of space. And this was a really important idea for the early 20th century modernists at the Bauhaus, for architects like uh, like Le Corbusier, the idea of actually using architecture to to produce a kind of space was absolutely central, which is why... if we leave out the sonic dimension and we think about architecture purely in terms of um, a visual construction, then we ha- we end up with a really impoverished idea of space that is limited mm. to only to one of our, our senses and, and leaves out the incredibly rich and clearly very important dimension of sound. Now, uh, oh, so your question was about McLuhan. Yes, it's re- so it's really interesting. McLuhan who taught at uh, the University of, of Toronto, where I, where I teach now, actually had a number of colleagues involved with architecture and architectural history. One of his colleagues at the university was named Jacqueline Tirrett, who she was actually an, an urban planner and was connected with a group called the called CIAM or the CIAM. It's the Congrès International d'Architecture Moderne, which was kind of a group, a sort of, of network for architects from all over the world who were broadly aligned with the modernist movement, with the international style of architecture and urban design, and would would share their ideas. And so this this woman, uh, Tirrett, was the conduit for McLuhan to really be influenced by all of these ideas of modern architects. And particularly, the, the most important influence on him was an art and architectural historian named um, Siegfried Gideon. So he was a, a Swiss historian who wrote one of the earliest histories of architectural modernism, 
um, really as it was happening in the in the 1920s, as European architects were beginning to design these radical new kinds of buildings. Um, Gideon was uh, was writing a book, sort of in real time, chronicling these developments, and and again really thematizing this idea of architecture as the construction of space. And so McLuhan discovered Gideon's writing and was deeply influenced by it, deeply moved by it. He he wrote later on in his life about how radical he found um, Gideon's uh, historical writing. He invited Gideon to come. He came to Toronto and participated in McLuhan's seminar on culture and communication. And this was the context where the phrase acoustic space was born. It wasn't, I mean, so McLuhan wasn't actually the first person to use this term. You can find earlier examples back in the 19th century of people using the words acoustic space. But really, it was McLuhan who seized on this expression and said, yes, this is the this is the key to putting together all of my ideas about media and sound and literature and uh, space, this, this kind of physical environment. And so he took up this phrase, acoustic space, and began to repeat it over and over again in his writings in the uh, uh, late 50s and in, in the 1960s. Um, it comes up and over he, and, and over what did again. He, what did he mean by it? He, you know, he never he never really defines it, or at least he never sticks of course to a not. single <laughs> consistent definition of it. Never. So <laughs> McLuhan, I mean, as anybody who's read Marshall McLuhan knows, I mean, he's, he's an, an absolutely inspiring writer. It's a lot of fun to read his writing. Um, but when you actually try to, to pin down what, what is he really saying, what is actually the argument, so you can test it and see whether or not it, it makes sense, He's actually very slippery, and um, yes. uh, he, he's he's much better, I think, for for kind of sparking an idea, and um, it's, it's it's incredibly uh, rich and and creative way of writing that is is not really easy to pin down to a specific definition. So I think but you for can acu- you can see how an idea like acoustic space would be generative of ideas like media as. The extension of man, one of his one of his concepts, right? Like a the idea that we are bodies in space, and that our communications media are ways of extending the body. Our technologies are ways of extending the body. Um, and then, of course, he has this sort of problematic way of historicizing our means of communication and extending our bodies based on these different eras that are allegedly happened. I mean, one of the critiques that that you and others have made is that even though this is a provocative idea, and like you say, it can be very good to think with, it also prevents us from thinking about the interplay of the senses within a given era, right? And that interplay is, is often the most interesting thing. Yeah, I mean, McLuhan is, is a, both a wonderful writer and, and also a frustrating one at times, I mean, you know, sometimes I read McLuhan and I think, well, he's he's almost exactly right, uh, but but not quite. And sometimes it's the it's the actually I think his for me his his historical uh, framework is 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 useful. It's, it's useful that he made that argument because at the time he made it, 
nobody had put forward anything like that before. And, yeah. and it, he was incredibly perceptive in, in picking up on some of these historical changes. But that argument having been made and, and set out, um, then we can come, come along and see that, in fact, it needs a, a considerable amount of, of refinement, let's say, in order to account <laughs> for all of the um, actually more interesting overlaps and ambiguities and the ways that these things come into a more interesting kind of dialogue. And in some ways, I think McLuhan himself was really interested in those kinds of, of ambiguities as well. And the very phrase acoustic space, one reason why McLuhan's phrase acoustic space is interesting to me is because it combines two words which might have been thought to, to not have so much to do with one another. There's mm -hmm. a, an older intellectual uh, tradition which, which I guess we could, we could trace back to Hegel that, or, or, or even considerably earlier, that, that uh, uh, music is an art of, of time and visual arts at, in which architecture is, is grouped uh, is, uh, has to do with space. And so when we talk about sound, we're, we should really be focusing on the temporal dimension as opposed to the spatial. So the phrase acoustic space is immediately interesting because it, it refutes this whole uh, uh, presupposition and suggests that, in fact, sound does occupy space and can articulate and even, in a way, construct a certain kind of space. And, and clearly, that was part of the appeal for McLuhan. So, in a way, I think, although we can point to some of the limitations of McLuhan's historical categories, I'm sure he, too, would be the first to acknowledge that uh, that, that way of thinking can be too limiting. Yeah, and and it's so in keeping with his idea that the medium is the message that the media technologies that were available at that time, I think just make the notion of acoustic space more available to the mind, right? Like I, I, like my story about Taiwan, I kind of came to this sensibility about acoustic space through my exposure to, you know, the Walkman and to this Buddha machine creating this certain kind of spatial, like I was literally, I heard, I heard it sound and I was started wandering through some alleys to try to track down where this sound was coming from, right? Like it was a very spatial experience. And, and there's something about the way we inhabit uh, a, a, a world of mediated sound that makes idea, the sensibility of acoustic space just readily available to us in ways that perhaps it really wasn't in earlier eras. Yes, or, or in different ways. It may, maybe have been available in different ways in other eras. As, as, you're, as you're describing this vignette from Taiwan, I'm, so I'm sitting here in Paris, and it was exactly 6 p.m., and so as you were speaking, a you probably couldn't hear it on the recording, but a, um, a, a church bell just down the street started ringing. And um, if you, I mean, anybody who's spent time in one of these old European cities knows that when, when the church bells start going, the 
it, they can actually be incredibly loud when you're up close to them. And then the way the sound of the bells reverberates down a narrow street of stone buildings can be extremely intense and, and a, a very spatial experience of sound. And then oh, yeah. if another church bell a few blocks away also starts going and you can sort of, you can almost hear the distance between the two structures. Uh, so yes, I, uh, the idea that acoustic space is in some ways a, a product of our media environment is, is absolutely true. And we have to remember that people who lived you know, 300 years ago, or however many years ago, had their own kind of media environment that had its own acoustic properties that that uh, may be somewhat foreign to us today. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Absolutely. Now that we've discussed Mick Lewin and his concept of acoustic space, maybe we can sort of uh, segue into talking about open plan offices. Uh, because it turns out McLuhan is sort of a player in in that <laughs> in that narrative as well. You recently wrote this article, "Too Much Information, Noise, and Communication in an Open Office," and I was thrilled to read this because when we first met, I was telling you uh, we met in Toronto at a writers' workshop, and I was telling you about the book project I'm working on, and one of the th- chapters it's probably the least researched chapter that i that i want to do is is think about the role of offices especially open plan offices in people's adoption of things like white noise machines and noise canceling headphones because you know quite often when we're thinking about what kinds of pressures cause people to use these technologies you know and i i ask people one of the big villains is the acoustic disaster zone of an open plan office. Um, And yet, as you point out, the people who originally designed this kind of space, they were thinking about acoustic communication. It's not like they didn't think about sound. They thought a lot about sound. So maybe can you sort of walk us through the early history of the open plan office what were people trying to accomplish? You know, where, where does this concept come from? Open plan offices started to become really popular in the 20th century, especially around the mid 20th century for, well, fundamentally because of, uh, of money, because it was cheaper to build one big open space and put a bunch of office workers in it, all sharing the same um, environment. Uh, rather than building a bunch of separate offices separated by walls and with a kind of corridor uh, connecting them. This became possible with the advance of uh, steel and reinforced concrete construction, so you could have big wide open spaces in buildings, fluorescent lighting, uh, modern air conditioning technology, all made it more possible and more appealing to construct these kind of vast open spaces. But beyond the 
simple uh, budgetary rationale that it was cheaper. There was also an argument that people could work better, especially in the kinds of knowledge professions where people needed to communicate with one another as part of their jobs, that it was, it was better to do it in a big open space because it allowed for the kind of free flow of ideas. Coworkers could just talk to each other directly rather than always having to walk down the hall and see if somebody else knock on the door and see if they were in their office. So for a lot of businesses, and this is sort of uh, goes along with the, the rise of the knowledge economy that we kind of often talk about in the, in the post-World War II period, a lot of corporations started turning to these big open plans thinking that it would improve the way that people work. And of course, as you can imagine, sound and the acoustic environment is entangled in this idea in so many ways. Yeah, and and one of the points that you make that I really enjoyed was we see this transition from pre-World War II thinking about the office as a machine to after World War II starting to think of the office as a computer and that the, the circulation of information verbally between people in this knowledge work, you know, milieu becomes sort of like definitional of what what is being done in an office like that that's sort of starts to be the conception of what we're actually doing when we're in an office we're circulating information and so it would make sense to sort of reduce those physical barriers to our verbal communication with one another because we're all really just nodes in a network of information, right? Exactly. <laughs> We're just one big brain and you wouldn't want you wouldn't want to divide your brain with a bunch of walls, right? You want the brain to be whole. Exactly. Exactly. We're one we're one giant brain and this idea really reflects the rise of of cybernetics in the post-war period, mm -hmm. this incredibly fashionable uh, interdisciplinary way of thinking about communication and and control systems in anything from an actual digital computer to a whole society and kind of how it works. But a very influential field in the study of management and business in the post-war period, and so very influential on the design of offices. And can you tell us a little bit about the, the German roots of the open plan? Because I, this was something that I wasn't really aware of until I started reading your work. Yeah, I'm um, actually I see the history of open plan offices as a kind of of dialogue between essentially American and German designers and executives. So some really crucial steps happened in Germany. Of course, if we think about the history of modern architecture in Germany, the Bauhaus, architects like um, Walter Gropius or Ludwig Mies van der Rohe were incredibly important in promoting the basically a, a taking uh, industrial means of making buildings and developing a kind of aesthetic style for them and really developing design methods and selling the, these to the public to make big uh, uh, modern steel and glass and concrete buildings 
um, stylish and to give them a kind of aesthetic sensibility. So the open plan was an incredibly important part of that. The building of the Bauhaus, uh, which was designed by the architect Walter Gropius in the 1920s, had a, a big, essentially open plan workshop studio space. So if, if you think about hundreds of uh, design students in the 1920s went to school and learned design in, in a giant open plan space. So it was an incredible tool for the kind of propagation of this idea of modern architecture. So in the post-World War II period, the, the Germans, especially in West Germany, were really interested in open plan office design. And of course, West Germany at, at this in this period had a very uh, direct dialogue with the United States. There was a lot of Marshall Plan money flowing into West Germany to kind of support the, the economic uh, rebuilding. And so a lot of German companies were adopting models of American business. And also a lot of, of German ideas were finding their way uh, into North America as well. So I'm interested in this kind of dialogue between the two countries and, and how it shaped uh, the design of workplaces. And you talked about the, um, I, I don't remember how, to, how it said in German, but it was the idea of the landscape yeah, yes. office. It's a, yes, it's one of these wonderful German words that's just a, a taking a bunch of words and putting them together. It's a Bürolandschaft. Um, so this is what a term that a couple of office, actually, they were kind of office consultants, uh, came up with around, uh, around 1960. They were uh, two brothers named... Uh, Eberhard and Wolfgang Schneller, and they companies would hire them not just to uh, redesign their physical environment, that was part of it, but really to rethink the whole way that the, that the office would be organized, rethink the work processes, and so they became incredibly influential consultants, and they invented a, a kind of model of the office that they called the Bürolandschaft, or landscape office which would be a huge, completely open interior space. And these were uh, much larger uh, building floor plates than had been customary in office buildings up until this time. Um, and so again, it's really these new technologies like fluorescent lighting and air conditioning that make this possible. Um, but it was very important for them that the space be completely open so that uh, co-workers could have this direct exchange with one another. And it was a, you know, a somewhat utopian idea that more communication is always better. And yeah. for, the, for those of us who actually have experience uh, working in, in open offices, you might think, you know, not, <laughs> you, you're banging your, your head against the wall when you hear that because, because we all can think of the, the aggravations and annoyances that come from uh, having too much communication with uh, our coworkers. Yeah, and that is so fascinating to me because as someone who has worked in an open office and had that kind of frustration and just felt like, oh, this is just a cheaper way, you know, to toss us all into one big room and they don't care what our experience is. It was fascinating for me to learn about how these Schnella brothers were really thinking that this kind of cybernetic approach to the office would actually flatten the hierarchies of the office and that it was actually this kind of liberatory idea that you would have this, you know, 
agile uh, workforce where workers had more autonomy and could collaborate and work in teams and all of this very familiar type stuff today, that it was a really kind of a democratic way of thinking about the office, um, which is so different from the lived experience of being a worker drone in an open plan office. It's just kind of fascinating to me. Yeah. In, in studying this history, I mean, I just go back and forth between seeing their ideas as, as incredibly altruistic and incredibly dystopian. And somehow these two things <laughs> uh, coexist at the exact same time. Uh, but at the time, in the 1960s, um, this, uh, this was seen as, as an incredibly progressive and democratic way of, of making offices. In some of these uh, new corporate headquarters that they designed, even the executives, even the CEOs wouldn't necessarily spend all their time in a private office, but sometimes would actually be out there in the, uh, the open space along with their employees. So it was meant to kind of reduce some of the hierarchies and, and to reduce some of the gender hierarchies as well. So people would have thought of, you know, the women are, are the secretaries or the typists and they're in, in kind of in, in the open spaces and then the men have, have private offices. And so breaking down some of these hierarchies um, was seen as, as an incredibly progressive development. Uh, but it also brought its share of acoustic frustrations because now you could hear everything going on around you. Yeah. And, and this was really interesting to me because it's, you know, one of those sad cases of unintended consequences. And this model of communication that, you know, cybernetics uh, has things like Claude Shannon's uh, 1948 essay, A Mathematical Theory of Communication, right? Where you're trying to maximize the signal and minimize the noise to enhance communication. Um Theories like this could sort of have unintended consequences when it came to architectural acoustics because people were sort of trying to apply that kind of theory and, and the way that they tended to do it was to think about echoes and reflections of sound, things that muddied the sound as being the noise that you wanted to reduce so that you can get a nice clear signal. Um, and this is what we do with like, you know, uh, recording studios and audiophile listening rooms as we deaden the space so that we can hear the signal more clearly. But in an open plan office, that can actually be counterproductive. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Sure. We all know how distracting it can be to when you're trying to read or write or concentrate to hear uh, the sound. For example, let's say you have a coworker who's talking on the phone and you're hearing one, so you're hearing one side of the phone conversation. And I mean, it can, it can be the most annoying thing in the world, right? So, so there, there was a, a great uh, effort. There was a, a real push uh, around the mid 20th century to make offices quieter and eliminate noise. And this is how it was conceptualized. And architects had a kind of, of repertoire of techniques uh, for doing that, because a lot of their experiences with acoustics were in buildings like uh, concert halls and theaters and spaces where you actually did want to eliminate extraneous noises so that the only thing you could hear was the uh, performance that you were there to listen to. The problem is that they found that in offices, the quieter they made them, the more people complained about noise. 
And that it, it seemed <laughs> counterintuitive, but actually, if um, anybody who's, who's like me, who sometimes likes to work in uh, Starbucks or work in a coffee shop or a place where there's a little bit of background kind of hum of people coming and going and, and talking, will recognize that, that this, this kind of background noise can sometimes actually be very conducive to work, among other things, because it has a masking effect. So uh, the the problem of distracting sound is not actually noise per se. If you define uh, noise as a an unintelligible sound, that actually that unintelligible sound could be good because the problem is the, is the intelligible sound. The problem is when you can hear noises that you recognize, and uh, th this is the thing that really interferes with your concentration. So there seems to have been a, a kind of paradigm shift around the 1960s in thinking about noise and moving away from that earlier paradigm of noise reduction and just wanting to, to quiet everything and instead actually embracing noise at least in limited amounts um, in always in carefully controlled ways, but for its masking abilities. Yeah, and this is a, you know, as you say, in this 1960s period, it's, interesting because we go from lionizing the uh, transmission of information in this kind of cybernetic model to starting to worry about something called information overload, right? <laughs> Where people start to worry, wait, wait a minute, maybe there's too much communication, maybe there's too much information. And it's interesting that information overload, as you mentioned, used to be kind of something that scientists worried about, like keeping up with the literature, which I think any of us can relate to as scholars, right? That form of information overload. But it kind of came into common parlance as just a way to think about this, this uh, bombardment of media. And McLuhan seemed to have an idea, and again, this is something I was not familiar with until I read your work, that maybe architecture could be a means of helping us, I don't know, mold us in such a way that we could handle the amount of information that, that we're downloading at any given moment? Yeah. No, it's really interesting how McLuhan fits in with, with the kind of anxiety about information overload. And McLuhan also writes about kind of the new, uh, all of the new media technologies and uh, challenging kind of our, our, our sensory balance and, and getting our senses out of balance in some way. And yeah. so his, his argument was that uh, humans needed to find ways of adapting to this, this new media environment, this, these new kinds of communication. And, and architecture was one among many uh, means of facilitating that adaptation. So he, he actually uh, wrote a number of articles for architectural uh, journals and magazines. He wrote an article in uh, the magazine Canadian Architect arguing that architects needed to be very aware of, of all of these changes in communication technology and, and media and to be really keyed into them because they, the, the special vocation of architecture, he thought, was to help architecture and, and really all of the arts um, was to uh, train people's sensoria to be able to deal with the new media reality that we're living in. 
And I think information overload was very much part of that and, and certainly a way of thinking through that experience of being in a big open plan office where you can, you can hear uh, fragments of people's conversations and uh, phone calls and all kinds of, of sounds of, of business going on around you. And you have to find a way psychologically of <laughs> somehow dealing with that and insulating yourself from that. And this idea of, of sonic masking became really important mm-hmm. and really comes to the foreground in this period. And, and actually, uh, your own work, Mac, on, on the history of, of, of white noise and the rise of uh, the kind of personal use of, of white noise machines uh, is, is also ex- contemporaneous with this and, and I think very much in dialogue with it. And as someone who, who uses a, a, a Marpac to sleep and I, I can't sleep without some kind of white noise, I, I, I completely uh, identify with this technology and with the uh, necessity of having some kind of, of masking to be able to just deal with this overload of sound. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in my book, Hush, I talk about how the invention of the sort of sound conditioner, as they called it at Marpac, was invented basically for domestic use and for helping people sleep. But they found that so many people were bringing these into the office that people were dissatisfied with the branding. There was a little badge on the top of the machine that said Sleepmate. And people didn't feel like that was professional enough. So they created a second brand. It was the absolutely identical technology, but they called it the sound screen so that you wouldn't have to be embarrassed about having a sleep mate in your office. And, <laughs> and so uh, these became, you know, part of, we might say, the tactics of people who inhabited the uh, open plan office to mitigate the noise problem. But what your work speaks to and you know what i'm so excited about learning more on is there were also these more centralized approaches to using noise to mitigate the noise problem and so this is where we get into herman miller and the action office maybe you could talk a little bit about about that absolutely Herman Miller, the furniture company, is incredibly important in this story. Herman Miller uh, created the the line of office furniture that they they call it the action office that is is often seen as the forerunner of the of the modern cubicle. Uh, essentially, up until that point, Herman Miller was primarily a, a residential furniture company, and they kind of found their way into uh, selling office furniture as well. And then this this action office concept really took off and seemed to just catch the, the kind of zeitgeist. Just as American businessmen were starting to discover the uh, the Landschaft, that, that that German kind of, of experimental open office idea, um, Herman Miller comes along and offers a, a set of a whole line of furniture, so desks, shelving units, uh, partitions, that is perfectly designed to uh, furnish a large open office space like this. And it was this kind of off-the-shelf product. You could buy it and configure your own um, landscape-style office. So these products and uh, these office designs really took off 
in the US. And of course, the this exactly coincided with the anxiety around information overload. And so very quickly, Herman Miller and uh, one of their chief designers, Robert Probst, who was an inventor who, who worked at Herman Miller and was kind of trying to, to think through a lot of these problems, they realized that they had to do something about acoustics. And so they actually, uh, Herman Miller did, uh, released its own white noise generator. It was called the Action Office Acoustic Conditioner. And so it was this little object that could uh, could be adjusted and tuned. Um, you could you could change the frequency of the sound and adjust some other uh, uh, sound qualities to be able to mask sound uh, of of any particular type that you might encounter throughout the office. So, for example, if you needed to mask the sound of somebody on a typewriter, um, you could set the frequency for that. If it was more, problem was more people talking, you could uh, you could adjust it. And as, uh, as time went on and as they continued to sell their um, action office line, uh, more and more uh, the advice that they were giving companies for how to configure their offices was designed around uh, or was organized around mitigating these kind of acoustic problems. And so they would even encourage companies to uh, lay out the workers in the office based on the sound levels that they would produce. And so, for example, where in a an earlier open office, you would cluster all of the typists into one typing pool, and then you would have the people who needed more uh, a, a quieter environment, you would sort of segregate them. Now, the advice was actually the opposite, that instead, you should distribute the typists evenly throughout the office. Um, so that their typing would just create a kind of, of uh, low-level background noise that would mask other kinds <laughs> of noise and, uh, and then would allow people to concentrate. So it's interesting the way you can actually trace this history of thinking about sound and noise and acoustics in the evolving office layouts over the decades. Yeah, that's just fascinating that... We're still using the same kind of space, but it becomes all about how do we how do we use noise to limit the amount of information that can travel through this space. Um, it, it's and and the principles of masking. One question that I have this idea of the electro. First of all, do you know does the the Herman Miller device was it also electromechanical or was it electronic? Was it playing um, a recording, or did it have a fan on the inside, like like the um, the Marpac device? I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, that's one thing that I want to dig into, and uh, also I'm really interested in sort of tracing the patents around that machine because I feel like even though there was there were experiments going on with somebody like Leo Baranek uh, at MIT. Um, on the principles of masking since World War II, I still f kind of feel like Marpac got there first in terms of a product. And I'm a little surprised how that got such a big uptake in the office world and Marpac never profited from that. Mm -hmm. And so I just don't know if they missed an opportunity for a lawsuit or if... <laughs> it sure sounds <laughs> like it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't know. <laughs> um, 
I, I, that's a great question, and I think that, yeah, it would be really fascinating to, to dig in and, and research that. I just wanted to, to mention a, a funny story while we're on the subject. So one reason why these acoustic masking concerns really, really started to uh, become intense in the 1970s in open offices is actually because of the improvement of air conditioning and, and ventilation technology. So... Mm. Uh, HVAC, tech, as, as we call it in um, architecture, heating, ventilating, and air conditioning um, systems were becoming um, quieter. And um, where before you would be sitting and you would always hear this kind of hum of, um, of the fan running, uh, blowing air, um, they became much quieter. And this was another case of it's sort of marketed as an improvement. Oh, it's, the system's much quieter. Um, but for people working in offices, it actually made it made things worse because suddenly now you, instead of that, that nice, just, uh, steady hum, you could hear everything going on around you. And so, so this was one of the catalysts actually for introducing a white noise, artificial white noise systems, uh, in offices to replace that, um, lost <laughs> air conditioning sound. But for many office workers, they still had the association in their mind. They, they thought this sound was coming from the, the air conditioner. And so there's one story of an office where the white noise generator uh, broke down and suddenly uh, people were having trouble working and they, 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 they all complained that they were suddenly feeling hot because the air conditioner stopped working, which was totally not true. The air conditioner was fine, but they subjectively... Uh, uh, felt like something was wrong uh, because they couldn't hear the noise anymore. So eventually the company had to let everybody go home for the day because uh, everybody was complaining about heat. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's that's really hilarious. Um, it, it speaks to that, you know, Marpac got the, the, the term that they use, the sound conditioner, from air conditioning, you know, like that they, they were very familiar with that sort of, sound of the air conditioner. And in fact, the, the story goes that they came up with the idea for the sound conditioner when the owners, the couple named the Buckwalters, uh, were at a roadside motel and the air conditioner broke down and suddenly they could hear the noise coming from the room next door and that they were kept awake all night because the air conditioner broke. So that's where they got the concept. That's such a great story. I love that. Yeah. So today, we are in a new era in which people communicate through computers. We're no longer just emulating a computer, arranging an office to be a giant brain. We're all, uh, you know, synapses on the web, so to speak. And so how has that affected the contemporary office. You know, obviously we're in a post-COVID moment where people are wondering if office space is still even necessary. When it comes to architectural acoustics and noise and the in the office, what's the story today? You know, it's a good question and I I'm I can't uh, provide a very satisfying answer because I'm I'm a historian, so I I deal with the past and not the <laughs> not the future and not really even the present. But um but I, I can say that computers started, or uh, de desktop computers really started to, to proliferate in offices in the 1980s, and, and they really did have a profound effect on the way offices were designed. So we, this is sort of when the, the uh, 
Berlandschaft landscape office idea really begins to decline. And in fact, there are examples of these former open offices being converted in the 80s into more compartmentalized offices, or sometimes into just uh, the kind of grids of cubicles that uh, we're all familiar with, a sort of dystopian cubicle farm. So it seems to me that with the introduction of networked desktop computers, this earlier metaphor, like you were saying, of the, the office as a giant brain, in a way doesn't make sense anymore. Because now the uh, communication nodes are, are, are computers rather than our, ourselves physically present together in a giant open workspace. Of course, that doesn't mean that open offices have gone away, and at least, or at least uh, up until the onset of the pandemic, uh, were still uh, quite popular. But, um, but, but some of that uh, kind of utopian idea that a, an open office will improve communication, will make it possible for us for the kind of ideas and knowledge to flow freely between coworkers, seems to have uh, lost some of its uh, persuasive power. As far as mm -hmm. the, the future and of, of offices after the pandemic, you know, it's really hard to say. Of course, it's true that uh, computer platforms like, like Zoom or uh, Teams or some of these other um, systems are, are really trying to, uh, they're, they're doing their best to give physical offices a run for their money. And, and the, the dream is that online platforms would be able to just completely uh, replace physical spaces where co-workers would gather together and work together. As a, for me, as a, somebody trained in architecture, I hope that doesn't happen. I, I would still make the argument in favor of the office, although the history of office design certainly has its share of kind of dystopian examples. I, I guess I, part of me uh, at heart, I, I still believe in the value of having physical environments where people come together and, and interact in person and uh, uh, collaborate uh, on projects uh, together. And, and I think, of course, the, the sonic dimension of that is incredibly important to, um, uh, to be with other people in a shared acoustic environment. So, but I do think it will be a challenge for office designers, as well as for, for companies to make that case uh, for what kind of value a physical shared office brings in a world where, as you say, we, we can communicate perfectly well or reasonably well through a, a digital network. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting tension at play right now. I mean, on the one hand, we have a lot of people post pandemic who are like, why should I come into the office at all? On the other hand, we've also seen the rise of co-working spaces where people who are digital nomads, so to speak, are feeling like they lack a sense of community and, and want a space where they can still be at least in proximity to others. So it's a, it is a very strange time for the office. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about all this. I've, I've really been, you know, over the past year, getting to know you and your work has been uh, just a, a professional highlight for me because uh, I think we, <laughs> we have a lot of interests in common and I really appreciate the rigor that you've brought to your research on this interplay between sound and architecture. 
Well, the, the feeling is really mutual, Mac. Your work has been uh, incredibly important and inspiring for me, and, and, and I've really enjoyed uh, the chance to, to talk to you today. All right. Well, thank you so much. Joseph L. Clark. Smart guy, right? I really enjoyed that. Uh, if you want to hear more from Joseph L. Clark, remember, you can sign up for our Patreon, patreon.com slash phantompower. And you can hear a bonus episode with 30 more minutes talking about the history of acoustics in architecture. All right, it's time for our, I don't even know what we're going to call this. Do we call it the voicemail bag? I don't know. But I do want to let you listen to the comments of DRC Charrington Neal. Um, and he had some really interesting comments about the Robin Miles episode. Lots of folks uh, in person have come up to me and, and said how much they enjoyed this episode. In particular, the box of shoes metaphor that uh Robin used to talk about vocal representation and who gets to represent whom. Um, uh, a lot of people thought that that was a really productive metaphor, as did I. Clearly, she's given these things a lot of thought. Um, and DRC has given a lot of thought to vocal representation when it comes to the video game industry. So let's hear what he has to say. It just annoys me in particular with the games that allow you to create characters. Cyberpunk 2077... It's like you can create a whole character and they allowed you to do things like swap genitals and the size. So I can do things like swap genitals and hairstyles and colors, but you won't let me actually swap the voice of V, which is the constantly voiced character that you get throughout as your character is supposed to be. And it is so grating to have a black character that I built from scratch, from ground up, with a white ass voice. Like it's really annoying. <laughs> and it's like that cyberpunk is particularly egregious because the developers went so far as to the game was built in Poland. So they went and hired a separate Polish voice actor to make sure that the Polish inflections were in there. So you can do this for Poland, but you won't do this for us. And the way I look at it is, the answer to this is quite simple. When you're, after the script is written and after you have everything done, hire a white person to read all the lines, a Latino person to read all the lines, and an Asian person to read all the lines, and a black person to read all the lines. Period. So just in case people decide they want a different taste, they can get it. It's so frustrating and I have so few examples to share with my class of actual voice actors that are doing actual black characters that it's really annoying. The other example, of course, is Barrett Wallace in the new Final Fantasy, who is thankfully voiced by a black dude. But I still have massive issues with the way that they voiced him because he's basically just a buffoon version of the 19, 1997 version that did nothing but ghetto epithets every three seconds. What's annoying is that people people don't even think about the way that black people would respond to certain issues. This is why it's important to have black people reading the script in a particular kind of way. You know, if I'm playing a video game and you see something pop off, you know, if I'm playing Mass Effect, I really need for my character to be like, oh, hell no. Like, that's exactly 
what we need to get. That's that's the feeling. That's the flavor. Because as a black person, you see aliens popping up the screen, you're not going to be like, oh, let's go do this. Or you guys fall back. No, that's that's not how we do it. Mm-mm. No, wrong. And it's just kind of like, you know, I don't care that like, so the best example that I can think of in recent memory that does this really great is a video game called Deathloop. And they had this black dude named Colt and he, it was so great. Like, it was a first-person shooter, and you played his cult, and just the way that he was responding, I mean, literally, the reason it's called Death Loop is because you're looping in on yourself, and he sees versions of himself, and the first time he comes across himself, they get into a black-ass argument, <laughs> and it was so good. It was so good. I was hollering, because I was like, whoever wrote this knew what they were talking about, clearly. They did their homework, but that's so rare. It's so rare. The litany of video games has all these white people talking all the time and we can't ever get anything. The industry is missing out because it's so rich. There's such a wealth of entertainment and expression that we can bring to video games that they don't they don't even bother with. And it's really frustrating. <laughs> Because you want me to continue to live in this and you claim it's immersion and immersive. I don't feel immersed. So what am I supposed to do? Thanks for those comments, DRC. And if you want to leave your comments with us, remember the new URL to do so is speakpipe.com slash phantom power. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions, show ideas, comments on previous episodes, it doesn't even have to be the last episode. It could be I don't know. Anything this past season really would be a uh, fair game as far as I'm concerned. I'd love to hear your comments. And that's it for this episode of Phantom Power. Uh, this episode was edited by Niso Sasha and myself with transcription and web handiwork by Caitlin Fan. And the music is by Blue the Fifth. Uh, I'll be seeing you guys in a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye.